Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Lawrence Reed, who's the CEO of Decibel Therapeutics, which is a gene therapy company focused on treating congenital monogenic hearing loss and regenerating inner ear hair cells for the treatment of hearing and balance disorders. I was really excited to speak with Lawrence for two reasons. First, Decibel is working on a really important and very underserved set of disorders. And I think taking a really exciting approach, combining single cell sequencing and gene therapy, the two of which have been obviously very big topics in the last five to 10 years. Uh, And second, Lawrence has just himself had a tremendous career prior to Decibel, including time at Millennium Pharma, now part of Takeda, Alnylam, Warp Drive Bio, and, and relatively recently, as well as an entrepreneur in residence at Third Rock Ventures. So I'm going to talk to Lawrence about Decibel, but also about his career more generally. Uh, So with that long intro, Lawrence, thanks so much for coming on. Excited to be here with you. Yeah. Hey, good morning, Patrick. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for having me and thanks for your interest in Decibel. My pleasure. I'd love to actually just start by going back to when you first heard about Decibel Therapeutics. What piqued your interest and got you excited about the company in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I never actually had any I suppose I was fortunate. I hadn't had much personal exposure to the challenges of, of hearing loss. I hadn't had family or, or close friends who, who'd lived through some of these challenges. So it's been a it's been a new adventure for me at this stage of my career, which has been incredibly educational and, and inspiring as well. Which is, you know more more importantly, before we get too far into this, I'm going to do a little bit of a wet blanket on you and remind all your listeners that I'm the CEO of a public company. And anything I say about the uh, future success of the company or or any of our products, which I love to talk about, but uh, they all involve significant risk and they all have a few years to go to get to market. And so I am obligated to give you that warning up front, but otherwise I will try and Excellent. give you a full fun picture of our company. And your question, sorry, you asked a great question. So I, I heard about Decibel, well, no, I've known about Decibel actually since day one. So De- Decibel, or in fact, probably day minus 720. Decibel got formed in late 2016, and the company was actually run by Steve Holtzman, who was the first CEO of Decibel. And uh, Steve, somebody I worked with many years ago and have known for a long time. So I would hear about Decibel and the excitement of trying to find novel therapies for the ear um, through Steve. I'd heard about it a little bit before that, you know, Third Rock, and maybe we'll talk about Third Rock later on, but Third Rock likes to incubate these ideas as, you know, embryonic companies, and and they do an incredible job of that. And so Decibel had been worked on for a while before people really got the impetus to be ready to pull the trigger and invest and really believe that molecular innovation is coming to the inner ear, which it, it clearly is. And then in terms of actually ending up being an employee, at the end of 2019, Steve decided um, he was going to retire. I was actually at a, going back through a phase of my career of working again with Third Rock and contemplating spending time there as an executive in residence. And Decibel started looking for a new CEO. And so I knew about it through Steve. I knew about it through Third Rock, but really knew nothing about the field. And as, and as I learned about it and the opportunities to make new medicines in an innovative field and the opportunities to really change the lives of people with particularly severe forms of hearing loss or severe forms of balance disorder, new, completely new field to me. And actually, you know, and a very new field really for the industry in terms of therapeutics. And I was incredibly excited by that. And that that remains absolutely the case two and a half years later. So uh, love to tell you more about that. Yeah, w- within this category of diseases involving the inner ear, maybe you can just introduce us how, how many diseases are there? What are the common ones? How many rare ones are there? And and what is the where, where do you all focus within that? relatively broad yeah, no, it's, category it, of biology. It's, it's a great question. So let me sort of start at, at the highest level and and also just you know put our finger on a paradox right out of the gate. So the paradox is that 
you know, hearing loss is a, you know, massive global unmet need. And there are literally hundreds of millions of people around the world who are afflicted by some form of hearing loss. Um, and there's a huge range of causes and etiologies. And I'll, I'll give you a sort of a landscape of that. And there are no therapies for hearing loss. And obviously that's our excitement is to get into the field and try and bring new pharmaceutical innovation to the field. There are a number of assistive devices, hearing aids, of course, most commonly, and we can talk about hearing aids. And then and then at sort of the next level of technology beyond that is really a device called a cochlear implant, which is used in people with very severe forms of hearing loss, which in simplistic terms is a microphone that gets tapped literally directly into your central nervous system by a device that's embedded in your inner ear. And both increasingly are you know, remarkable pieces of hardware. A cochlear implant been around for sort of 20 or 30 years. You know, and the but is that, you know, they're not disease modifying. And so they are not able to provide, you know, 24-7 hearing. But almost more importantly, they can't provide the quality of hearing that you and I were lucky enough to be born with. And where that matters most is in a is in a is in a complex environment. So the easiest examples and I'll go back and talk about the whole landscape. The easiest examples, actually, if you think about a child in a classroom or an older person in a multi-person social context, those are environments where the sound is complex, there are multiple people contributing, and one's ability with limited hearing to really digest all that information and participate in that social process and benefit from the cognitive impact and the cognitive development or the cognitive maintenance impacts of that is really it, it, it's really undermined if you don't have a you know full set of physiological hearing capabilities. So, so I think that's that's the importance. Let, but let me go back to your landscape question, which is a really good one. So, amongst that massive landscape, a little bit of biology, and then we can talk more about about biology later on. Sound is transduced into your ear by what are called hair cells. Um, and these are cells that are able to detect a mechanical signal, which is a sound wave, and transduce that into your brain as the concept of, w- of what we think of as sound. And those hair cells, everybody loses them approximately linearly over the course of your life. So we all get to a stage, late middle age, going on into later in life, where you start to hit thresholds where our hearing with respect to the cochlea or our balance with respect to the vestibule start to lose the acuity that they have early in life. So we're all going to start to hit those thresholds. Right. And and that in simple terms is 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 the common etiology of why the numbers are so massive. And then on top of that, there are various insults that can make that a much more acute or severe problem earlier in life. And the best examples of that are well the number one example really is noise and that people who are subjected either to um, severe acute noise, veterans, people in the military being the most obvious example, or just acute high high noise levels over a prolonged period of time, construction workers is another very, you know, fairly common uh, source. But that can 
also drive the destruction of your of your hair cells or the impairment of their function. So that contributes and it drives you sort of down that degradation process more quickly. So suddenly people right. in more regular middle age are starting to be to be afflicted that or, or young men coming out of the military who've been exposed to, you know, a particular type of event that can be highly, highly damaging. You know, hearing loss and, and it, it challenges a you know big problem amongst the veteran uh, community. And then other examples of certain kinds of pharmaceuticals are also very good. I mean, glycoside antibiotics, certain types of chemotherapy, right. one of which we're involved in working on, actually, in other words, sorry, on the ototoxicity, can also kill hair cells and have a very acute impact on your hearing capability. And then back to, you know, much earlier in life and where we're spending a lot of our time now, there are many genetic forms of hearing loss. And as a slice of the multi-hundred million person pie, genetics is, is a small piece, but many genetic forms are severe. We work on a, uh, some conditions with very profound hearing loss, you know, at a congenital basis, and which is, which is incredibly important from a child's development. So there's an overall backdrop of loss of hair cells, and then there are either acute or prolonged or genetic impacts that can override or exacerbate or accelerate that in terms of different stages of life and, and, and more acute outcomes. So hopefully that gave you the That's perfect. And and it seems like you all have both a genetic focus, but but you also have a real understanding of the biology of the inner ear, right? And that's why you can address each of those different categories rather than just one specific genetic form, for example, right? Tell me a little bit about that that platform and understanding of the inner ear biology? Thank you. That's a, that's a great leading question. So at Decibel, what we think we've really brought together, I would say, is, is three components, two of which are technological and one of which is really human in terms of building the platform that we're using to, to develop novel therapies that, that, that focus on the hair cells in your inner ear. So the, the three components that come together are really our, our modern single-cell genomics-based platform and the bioinformatics analyses that go with that in terms of really a complete molecular characterization of each of the critical cell types of the inner ear. Secondly, out of that, a technological ability to turn that into a pipeline of what we re- refer to as precision gene therapies. And by that, we mean the ability for our, uh, for our gene therapies to include molecular controls such that we impose cell-selective expression on the transgenes in our, uh, in our gene therapies, which we think is incredibly important in terms of delivering a gene as closely as possible to the physiological environment, either in which nature intended it to work, or if it's a regenerative medicine, we want to drive that effect in a very cell-selective manner, and we can, we can drill down a little bit on that. And then the third piece, which is broad, but is really critical and was certainly a major factor for me in getting excited about Decibel, is really a set of, of expertise in, quote-unquote, biology of the inner ear, b- broadly defined. So my colleagues have, I would say, exquisite understanding of the cell and molecular biology of the cells of the inner ear. We also have fantastic experience in thinking about the patient populations whose conditions are driven by pathology in the inner ear. And then the third piece of that, actually, skills that have been acquired over the last few years are really how do we access the inner ear and how do we deliver safely and effectively medicines, whether small molecules or gene therapies, to the inner ear. There are huge advantages to, the, to working in the inner ear that I think are under-recognized and why I think gene therapy is going to be such a powerful modality, has the potential to be such a powerful modality for the inner ear, 
but you need to access it. It's it's this tiny right. little cavity and it's enclosed in bone. And so that's a challenge. You've got to get there. I think the gene therapy, if you know how to get it there, can be an incredible technology for conditions of the inner ear. This is this is actually exactly one of the questions I wanted to ask, and it, it will betray my lack of understanding of the anatomy of the ear because I've had past guests in the podcast working many of them in gene therapies and brain, yeah. Yeah. other hard to reach organs. And the challenge there is always is always twofold. You've got to make the medicine that works, but you've got to deliver it there. Yes. And often the, the delivery is the big challenge. My naive assumption was that delivery to the ear would be more straightforward. But like I said, it betrays my lack of understanding the ear anatomy. Maybe you can explain, yeah. explain a little bit more about how that works and, and how you would get a, a gene therapy to the inner ear. Yeah, I'd no, love to. So we really are very excited, as I said, about the potential of the inner ear for gene therapy. And I think it's a really exciting alignment of a technology and an organ you know, and a, and a significant set of unmet needs of a type that only comes along, you know, from time to time. And maybe at the end, we'll talk more about where some of these technologies go. So the inner ear has, it has analogies to your eye, which of course has been one of the forums in which there have been some, you know, successes with gene therapy in recent years. Um, the inner ear is a tiny enclosed compartment and the bad news is it's enclosed in bone. And so you have to get there. Um, the good news when you get there is it's um, 100 microliters in volume, plus or minus, and the, the treating cell populations of literally thousands of cells as opposed to mm. orders of magnitude more. So, right. the, so the advantages of that, which, which, are, which are very real, are A, that the amount of dose and the amount of drug that you're deploying is really tiny. We're talking about four, three to four orders of magnitude less drug than people are talking about for systemic uh, gene therapy, trying to uh, you know address the liver or the muscle. So that's fantastic from a manufacturing perspective, both the simplicity of manufacturing, cost of manufacturing. Secondly, the fact that the compartment is enclosed means that um, very little, not zero, but very little of the drug is ever is ever distributed into the systemic circulation, and so we believe that that, that there's a decent chance that over time that's going to give us tolerability advantages combination of the magnitude of the dose and then its enclosed nature relative to systemic exposure is going to give us advantages in, in terms of um, you know ultimate tolerability by by the systems outside the ear and then um, the third issue really gets really gets to delivery and so the when you access the inner ear the, the beauty of it is you can then deliver the the gene therapy directly into the suborgan you know that one is trying to that contains the cells that one is trying to address so it's it has a real advantage of local delivery we access it actually um we've spent a lot of time working and thinking on this we access a decimal our strategy is to access the inner ear by a surgical incision that is the same basic incision that is used by ENT surgeons when they embed a cochlear implant in the inner ear. And what we like about that is it's a surgery that's done on a daily basis throughout the developed world. And it involves an incision through the mastoid bone, which is right behind you know, the flap of your ear. And we can go through that with existing technologies, with, with, with catheters and, and, and yes. other uh, 510K approved technologies to deliver the drug effectively directly into the cell, into the or the suborgan, and, and hit the cell types that we're looking to hit. And then the final advantage is that the cells that we're trying to hit, the hair cells or the support cells, these are post mitotic cells. They're not dividing, which gives us ultimately hope that 
we're able to have the kind of durable effect that one wants from gene therapy. So it's a complex set of drivers and variables that are going into how do we get this exquisite technology from a molecular biology perspective into the right place. And, you know, we think the ear is a very, you know, very exciting opportunity for gene therapy. We really see the ear now as one of the vanguards of the gene therapy field. So, and of course, now we've still got a way to go in terms of proving that the various pieces that I just articulated, that we can join them up in clinical studies, which we'll get to in the next few years and incredibly excited to do that. Yeah, now that you anticipate my next question as well, what does it look like from here? Obviously, dis- disclaimers and, um, and, and speaking broadly, but what is the path to ultimately getting this to patients and starting to help these young children and, and other people that could really benefit from this from here? So, so where Decibel is today is we're hoping to file our first IND or CTA in Europe for um, a gene therapy for a rare profound congenital uh, hearing loss, monogenic hearing loss uh, this year, this calendar year. And so over the last you know, couple of years, we've been involved in regulatory interactions, learning about how FDA and the, Euro- the various European authorities think about gene therapy applied to a new organ. There was one gene therapy trial in the year a few years ago, um, led by the team at Novartis, and which wasn't successful was very educational in terms of understanding, particularly delivery routes to the ear. Um, Biologically, the target that they chose to go after now doesn't look like perhaps the most informed initial choice, but that's with some hindsight several years later. But it was still, you know, a very, was valuable for the field, although it was not a, you know, a medically valuable product in, in the foreseeable future. And the next generation that is coming through Decibel and, you know, and others, including our friends at Akuos, is that there are going to be gene therapies that are really focused on monogenic forms of congenital hearing loss, where one is really using gene therapy to complement a gene that is that is defective because of mutations that you have inherited from your parents. And so it's the most simple form of gene therapy, I think, in the sense of you know, you've got these genetic mutations, you put back a wild-type gene. Intellectually, it's as simple as it gets. There are there are many complications and risks that we will all be working through in terms of looking to you know try and overcome those risks to, to have it work in a human being. How how many roughly rare monogenic diseases are there that that affect the inner ear that we know of? Is it single digits, tens, hundreds? It's, it's a lot. So the, the estimate is that there are about a hundred different forms genetic forms, excuse me, or, or simple genetic forms, monogenic forms of hearing loss. Some of them are syndromic, for example, Usher's syndrome. Some of these conditions have impact on hearing and balance, and then often have, a, some, have an optical component as well. And then there are others that, that appear to be pure forms of, of genetic hearing loss. And yeah, we think there's about 100 or so. Some of them are exceptionally rare. And we work on three that we've talked about publicly that are due to mutations in genes called odoferlin, GJB2, and stereocilin. Uh, GJB2 and stereocilin are two of the more common forms of genetic hearing loss. Odoferlin is rarer, a genetic form of what's known as an auditory neuropathy, where you, you lose signaling to the brain because of a calcium sensor you know, in the hair cells. And, and so there, there are different types of genetics, and, and those genes then have odoferlin seems to have a somewhat homogeneous impact on children who are born lacking that gene. GJB2 
as a more complex distribution of, of genotype-phenotype relationships. And stereocilin, um, very interesting, quite a large patient population, but a more moderate form of hearing loss, which raises very interesting questions about gene therapy as, as a product for those children. So there's, there's a, a landscape there of different areas where, where the first we think the first product candidates are going to get developed. And, you know, in terms of picking amongst them, the way we think about it, obviously, one is trying to, you know, influence and try and change the lives for as, as many people as possible. But also, there are, of that 90 to 100, there are some where children who are born with a profound lack of hearing, the impact is probably going on, you know, in utero and their ear hasn't developed properly. And in terms of postnatal gene therapy, it may be that those are not accessible to us, you know, in the immediate future. So we try and focus on ones where there's a a decent patient, a decent sized patient population that we can imagine, you know, running a trial and having a, you know, ultimately a a viable product with with a, a significant number of lives to be influenced, but also that our understanding of, of the biology of the ear, despite the genetic, appears to be functional such that if one then returns the gene that is mutant from parents, that you, you actually think you've got a you know, reasonable probability of success that the child is then going to emerge with, with a more normal form of, form of hearing. And so there are, you have to think very carefully about targets from that perspective. Odoferlin, where we and others have chosen to start, seems to really tick that criteria. And it it would appear from both human studies and animal studies of of genetic models that the ear is functionally intact, except it lacks this one specific gene that functions in the hair cells of the inner ear. And we and others have done extensive um, rodent model studies where we can rescue the phenotype uh, in a pretty convincing way, you know, in an animal model and actually achieve that quite a long time after the birth of the animal, which gives us hope that therefore we're going to be able to do that perhaps over a range of ages of children. So it's so a lot of variability and a lot of thought that goes into, okay, where are we going to start from a clinical and drug development perspective? Yeah, I think that's such an important point. I first ran into this concept of a kind of therapeutic window. I, I did my PhD in rare rare genetic diseases that cause intellectual disabilities. And it's one of the central questions in that field as well. If, sure. if you have a child who's three years old, four years old, and were you able to to deliver a gene therapy or other kind of therapy, is it actually still possible to make some, you know, some corrections or improvements? And and I, I think the same work is going on there right now. And in some diseases, it seems to be actually the therapeutic window is is quite large where you could treat relatively several years after birth. But in other cases, it seems that for whatever reason, the, the damage may may be done and irreversible or seemingly irreversible. And so it's interesting to see this similar parallel where some of them may be just sim- like you say, simple replacements. And when you get the gene back, things slip back on. But in other cases, there may be structural damage or, or something else that happens. That's exactly right. The, the other thing that, that is just to go back to sort of the bigger picture of the lives of, of these human beings and that uh, to me, was just so compelling as I started to learn about the field. So, you know, a child born with biallelic mutations in odoferlin um, is born profoundly deaf. And from a medical perspective, we view that as what's what's referred to as a neurodevelopmental emergency. And the way to think about that is that a child, a lot of our linguistic skills and basics of our language, and if you think about then, you know, language in early in life is what drives 
all of your social interactions with your parent, with your classmates, with your teachers. It's an incredibly important input into your cognitive development early in life. And those linguistic skills are being acquired during the first sort of two to three years of life. And often, you made this point, often we do a great job very early. So in, in lots of the developed world, a kid is taken from the delivery room and has a very simple hearing test performed on, on their ears within you know, 48 hours of being born. So we do, we do really well early. And then after that, it gets much more challenging. Our ability to follow up and, and pass etiology, if there's a problem, is very ragged, very heterogeneous, different parts of the world, different parts of even within the US or, or different parts of Europe. Different cities within the U.S. are, are more or less good at doing that, and uh, you know, and, and and that's the emergency, right? You you you've got this sort of three-year window, and with a cochlear implant, they put a cochlear implant increasingly into a child's ear during that first year of life. It used to be sort of more like one to two years, but people are doing that earlier and earlier, and it'll eventually be the same if the gene therapies start to work. Same kind of thing that you'd really like to get into that that ear and restore the signaling really as early in life as uh, uh, as possible and really try and contribute to those early formative years. You think about babies acquiring those social interactions and those early um, linguistic skills. If you yes. if, if one remembers when, when kids learning, starting to learn language, a, a year, a year plus, right? It's just an, an incredibly important part of our human development. And I think if we, if we, where that development doesn't happen in its most full form, the implications of that can then run for many years, whether they are literal in terms of hearing and, and, and development, intellectual cognitive development, but also some of the emotional implications of that can run for very significant periods of time beyond that. What is the diagnostic pathway look like for, for some of these patients? Is genetic testing accessible or it, it depends on where i'm curious how it's very mixed it depends a lot on where so in an ideal world if you've got a child who who is diagnosed with a profound form of hearing loss or a less than average form of hearing loss you know the the, the follow-up in terms of beginning to dissect what the problem is you know we have the technologies to sort of begin to break it apart just based on physiological readouts and then you know from our perspective increasingly we we, we want those children to be, you know, to reflex down a genetic diagnostic path and access to genetic, to, to real genetic testing for differentiation of different, you know, molecular etiologies of hearing loss. As I said, it's pretty ragged. So I'm talking to you from Massachusetts. There are a couple of incredible hearing-based oriented institutions and our ability locally to get to the most sophisticated form of diagnosis, including genetic, is pretty good. But that process across even the USA, very heterogeneous and incredibly frustrating. You talk to parents of, of families with, who've worked through this, that, that our, our ability to progress a child through, okay, you know, even picking it up, if it's not picked up at birth, picking it up early in life, our sensitivity to detecting that your child might not have a, a full you know, set of hearing skills is pretty crude. It's often, you know, the nanny at a birthday party notices that the balloon got popped behind your kid's head and, you know, he or she just ignored it, right? It's sort of, it's that kind of stochastic observation that people pick up, okay, this isn't, this isn't quite on a, on a, on a usual trajectory here. And then the ability to, to march that child through what happens and the sophistication of, is there anything that can be done about it? And, and how do we dig into that is poor and heterogeneous. And it's very frustrating for parents and very 
very, I think, emotionally challenging for parents to usher their children through that. A, they're worried about, okay, what are the implications of this for my child's longer term, you know, trajectories? And then B, what, if anything, can I do about it? And it's, as I say, it's, it's, we need to do better there. Now, of course, there's a paradox often with genetics, right? The, the therapy drives the diagnosis and the, and the two things go hand in hand. So part of what we're trying to do at, at Decibel and, you know, and other places is we drive education campaigns for, for people, ENTs and audiologists, so people are thinking about genetics as an overt cause. And then we're investing in technologies. We have a collaboration that enables uh, free care, uh, free access, excuse me, to genetic testing for a very about 200 or so genes that are believed to be candidates for for hearing loss. So really trying to drive education and the beginnings of you know of a more robust process to get these kids yes. sort of go through that type of access to real genetic diagnosis that that hopefully will you know at least allow some of them to go on and get a, a genetic based therapy. I did want to come back to Third Rock Ventures. You're wearing your your Third Rock Ventures fleece. It sounds like Decibel was incubated in Third Rock. And I, I'm just curious what makes that organization so special and so great at launching so many incredible biotech successes. It, it, you know, I, I could stand here and name them, but um, they, there, there, are, there are too many other websites to name. But I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, on what is it that, that, they, that makes them so special and that they do so well? It's a great question. And they, I mean, a lot of biotechs talk about teams and, and uh, the Third Rock team itself was an incredible set of combinations of investors and executives who came together to, to found Third Rock back in, I think it was 2007, if I remember correctly. Um, and people who I've had the privilege to know for to sort of 20 or 30 years, many of whom were involved in building Millennium Pharmaceuticals. So I think it's, it starts with, and I think this is all public information, it starts with an outstanding team, right? The people who came together to start Third Rock they believed that people who'd been involved in building great companies had skills that they were going to be able to reproduce to, you know, to help, you know, start and, and nurture new companies. And, you know, they have to, and then on top of that, you need to overlay an investing savvy for, which often is a question of, you know, is it the right time for this technology? And, you know, what's a sensible investment strategy in terms of how much capital, how quickly, for example. So started with a team of just people, founders of, of the firm that they augmented, all of whom had operating experience and had a track record of building great companies themselves. Secondly, they have a they have a model that is is very patient. And so they their ideas are very much generated inside and, and with their cadres of advisors. And they take a problem like hearing loss. Is it time for innovation in that field that can support the birth and growth of a new company? And they are willing to kick those ideas around for a year or two, if that's what it takes. I really believe that they've pressure tested the ideas, they've begun to assemble a team, and that they, and then it really is the time to make that first material investment of you know of money together with great people in, into starting a company. And they're willing to kick back ideas, they're willing to beat on ideas for for months and then reject them or send them sort of back to the drawing board. Decibel long, long, long before I was involved or even heard about it. I had a couple of friends who worked on it and there were technologies that were maybe coming from sources or 
big pharma, and they worked on it for a while before they decided to, to pull the trigger on it. And, yes. and you know, and here we are six years later, and some of the ideas they had, you know, have continued, and some of them, you know, bit the dust along the way. This is not a perfect process, which is why I think their attitude is like, okay, how do we really understand the problem and really bring people together and really define what we think the early plan should look like before we invest? And I think that other investment firms may pull the trigger on writing a check sooner. But that means that the company is then doing a lot of this sort of continuing to explore where are the best opportunities right. inside the company. It's just a it's a it's a different way of thinking about the, the, the formative uh, the formative years. You've spent your most of your career, it seems like working rare disease, precision medicine, one or the other or both. I, I'm curious to close out here how how much have things changed over the course of your career and how optimistic are you now about the future given all the changes that that have happened uh, compared to maybe when you when you started or when you were at millennium as an example yeah that's a great example so so i'm incredibly optimistic I, I i just think that our ability to use genomics and genetics just continues to move at amazing pace i mean obviously editing is the the, the theme do like i say the theme to jour. that's not fair on the editing people who've been at this now for for a little while and are clearly going to influence massively the, the, the future of medicine i know you're talking to me from cambridge england i was a genetic student many years ago so i've always been fascinated both with genetics as the basis of of, of human disease and that and then what could that teach us about how to develop you know really innovative therapies millennium was formed along with other genomics companies in the 90s and it was my first foray into biotech and it was just intellectually it was incredibly exciting to me the notion that genetics could form the basis of a company to understand mechanism to drive therapeutics and I think it's objective to say that there were a lot of ideas that were, that were thrown around at Millennium in terms of genetics driving therapies and genetics driving di better diagnosis. That would they were just ideas that were just ahead of their time. At, at that point, okay. that's pretentious. I think it's fair and. We always understood that a target like PCSK9 could be an absolute holy grail, right? That you would find a gene that a loss of function gave a good benefit to in terms of that lipid phenotype. And, you know, we would have killed to find a gene like that at Millennium in the early 90s. And I think in terms of just the pieces that had to come together, we were way too early. And it took us a while to figure that out, I would say, in terms of, you know, there was no genome sequence at that stage. We didn't have the kind of databases of, of SNPs that were available, the work that had to go into phenotyping patient populations. We understood all that, and it just, it wasn't there. And so, you know, Millennium eventually got to a, to a really interesting outcome, and I think really drove a lot of this thinking, but, but it was kind of ahead of its time, which was an incredibly was an incredible environment to be part of. But I look back on some of those ideas now, and occasionally I meet people who are building companies driven by genetics as a way to find targets. And I'm like, yeah, we talked about that back in 1998. And I probably look like an old an old cynical guy, but it's true. And I'm trying to think about, you know, focused populations to really understand disease genes and then molecular markers for better diagnostics. It, that's It's taken a while, but it remains, we've just talked about it in hearing loss, it remains, I think, a massive basis of, of the future of the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, I'm in the little gene therapy sector right now. It's been a rough year or two for the gene therapy sector and for reasons that are that are real and that, that, are, that can be intimidating if one is in the wrong frame of mind. I have huge confidence that, that we will keep bringing new technologies to bear on better ways to deliver genes more selectively to, to the right set of tissues and or edit genes. I, I just think there's an incredible cadre of, of technologies, people, momentum, 
And so I have huge optimism, which is just, I suppose, a personal belief statement. But I think that the progress we've been making, you know, is is remarkable. But it's, and then in the, in the short term, it's easy to be sort of depressed by the challenges of the latest gene therapy trial trying to hit the liver and some of the problems that come in terms of sustainability or, or, or side effects. You know, these, these, these new roams, they're not built in a day. It took the monoclonal guys... You know, from the idea of, of tagged antibodies back in, you know, the late 1970s to where it became a routine part of care, these things, or, or pharmaceutical development, these things take decades to, to develop sometimes. And so you have to be very, really, really targeted, which is actually brings me back to the, the part of the reason I'm excited about Decimal is I think this local delivery opportunity is very interesting. So, but yeah, no, I'm an optimist at heart, even at my slightly, uh, you know, later stage of my career. And, and these technologies are going to continue to change medicine over the next 20 and 30 years in really profound ways. That's great. I, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, I, I just think it's tremendous that you're using your time and talents to work on such an important area of medicine. Like you said, there's no therapy that's that truly addresses the root cause. There are interventions that can help, but I, I just think it's a really important mission. So thanks for your time today and for all the amazing work that you and the team are doing. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Anytime. And thanks everyone for listening. As always, please share the podcast with a friend if you liked it. And also you can leave a review on your favorite podcast player to help other people find us. Thanks for your time and we'll see you next time. 